1 Corinthians 15, we made our way down through verse 28, where we had the little disclaimer given to us by the Holy Spirit so that we could properly understand Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2, that when the Bible says all things are put under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is manifest, it's obvious, it's clear that He, God, that put all things under Jesus Christ's feet, is accepted from that general rule. We come to verse 29. Before we start at verse 29, let me quickly run you through the outline we've had so far. Verses 1 and 2 are an introduction from the, use of, from the dealing with spiritual gifts in verses 12 through 14 to introduce, moreover, brethren, I want to get back to the gospel that I preached to you because there's a problem in Corinth. Then verses 8 through 10 was the history of the Lord Jesus Christ that was confirmed by many witnesses that he had indeed risen from the dead. Verses 11 and 12 stated the heresy that there were teachers that had been allowed in the church at Corinth that were teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. Then verses 13 down through 28, or we can say verses 13 through 23, we're dealing with the salvation aspects of such a heresy, that it ruins the doctrine of salvation. And then verses 24 through 28 deal with end things, or end times, or eschatology, and how it also is stating the inevitable that death is to be destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 29 through 35, 29 through 35 are the practical arguments that the apostle raises to prove that there was indeed a resurrection or their entire religious practice was going to be overthrown. And there's two of these. The first is their mode of baptism and their purpose for baptism. And the second of these is the risk of death that Paul and the other apostles took on themselves all the time. So there's two practical arguments here that Paul lays on the church at Corinth along with the prophetic arguments, along with the salvation arguments, along with the historical arguments, and he's going to get to how to answer the skeptics in the second half. But at verse 29, argument number one of a practical sort against there being no resurrection. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? The middle clause of those three clauses being the heresy being taught at Corinth, that there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul's practical argument is, we are Baptists at Corinth. Being Baptists, we baptize by immersion. When we baptize by immersion, which involves a resurrection out of water, we are declaring our faith in a resurrection of the dead. If the dead don't rise, why in the world are we Baptists that are buried in water and raised again from water? Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? When we're baptized by immersion, the burial and the resurrection shows that we have hope, we have faith, we believe that it has been declared from the Word of God that the dead shall rise. Right. Remember, baptism has a burial and a resurrection that show three important gospel facts. One, Jesus was buried and rose again for us. We bury our old man to rise to walk in newness of life. And if our bodies are buried in a cemetery, they will rise again. If the dead rise not, then our baptism becomes foolish in its mode. Baptists are the only ones that can answer 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Amen. Presbyterians hang themselves in this verse because they don't have a mode that shows death and resurrection. 
Presbyterians and Catholics and others believe that baptism, because they accept sprinkling as the mode or pouring as the mode, is an emblem or a symbol of regeneration, and nowhere is that taught in the Bible. They run into the book of Ezekiel where baptism is not even being dealt with and read about God prophesying a sprinkling of the Spirit upon His people and they jump to conclusions that are not found there. Baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. That's what Baptists believe and there are three pictures of it. And if the dead don't rise, baptism becomes worthless. Have to go on. Second argument. Oh, there's much more that has been and could be said, but I hope it's been said before. Verses 30 through 32. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Verse 29 was a question. Verse 30 is a rhetorical question about the practical implications of their heresy. First of all, it ruins baptism in verse 29. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What do those three verses mean? They're a practical argument that there must be a resurrection of the dead. Because if there's not a resurrection of the dead, why would Paul take the risk of life every day? I die daily. I am daily faced with the prospect of death. I put my soul, I stand in jeopardy every hour. The Jews are looking for me all the time. The Gentiles look for me. I'm in jeopardy all the time. Why would I be willing to do that unless I believe there was a resurrection from the dead? Or, or do some of you think I'm an Epicurean? That's the argument. That 32nd verse is, if, to the, if after the manner of men, he is taking a, si- a little side part of this argument and saying, are you trying to say that I'm, I might be an Epicurean? That the reason I'm taking all this jeopardy and I'm putting my life at risk every day is because the, only, the way I look at life is eat, drink, and be merry? Like those that fight animals in the Colosseum at Ephesus? The answer to that question is no. We know Paul wasn't an Epicurean. Paul was willing to stand in jeopardy every hour, and Paul faced death daily because he did believe in the resurrection. Notice again in verse 32, the middle clause is, if the dead rise not. He's arguing from the false doctrine being taught at Corinth. If the dead rise not, and I put myself at risk like the men at Ephesus, I must be an Epicurean. But you all know I'm not an Epicurean. Therefore... There must be a resurrection of the dead or your apostle would not be facing jeopardy every hour and death every day. I hope that's sufficient for the time being because that's his argument. Two practical arguments. Number one, if the dead don't rise, baptism is stupid. If the dead don't rise, I'm stupid because I'm putting my life at risk every day. In fact, I'm in jeopardy every hour. I must be like those men that fight beasts at Ephesus with no regard for the future. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, because gladiators that had to go into the Colosseum, hey, today might be the last day. Give me the best wine you've got and the best food you've got. And we know Paul wasn't that. Do you know how do you know how you can live your life out and burn yourself out and take jeopardy every hour and be willing to die every day? Because you know there's a whole lot better life coming as soon as you can die, the sooner you can get to the next life. 
Those are the two practical arguments. Verse 33, be not deceived, you Corinthians. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. They change your lifestyle if you don't keep your doctrine right. We quote this verse all the time, but I want you to know exactly where it falls. It falls upon a church that was letting teachers teach in that church things that were not true. And that's what it means by evil communications. You allowing teachers to teach that there is no resurrection of the dead, that is an evil doctrine. You shouldn't allow that kind of communication to go on in your church. And don't be deceived about it. It's going to corrupt your good manners. It will eventually affect the doctrine of baptism, and it will eventually affect how you live for the Lord. Because the doctrine of baptism is based on the resurrection of the dead, and the way that I live for the Lord, facing jeopardy every hour, is based on the resurrection of the dead. If you keep corrupting that doctrine, it's going to... I mean, if you keep allowing evil communications about that doctrine, it'll corrupt your good manners. We use it for friends. We use it for communication. But it applied to a church. The church at Corinth had allowed teachers to teach things in that church that were not true about the resurrection of the dead, and it was corrupting their good manners. They were going to lose their salvation. They were going to lose the salvation of those in the church cemetery. They were going to lose the future prospect of the Lord Jesus Christ defeating death as the last enemy. They were going to lose the purpose for baptism. They were going to lose the purpose for Paul living the way he did. That's what it means. Evil communications, false doctrine corrupts good lifestyle. The truer the doctrine, the better the lifestyle when that true doctrine is believed and laid hold of and held fast every day of a person's life. Verse 34, he continues his rebuke of this church. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 33 and 34 are a rebuke of the church. Don't you be deceived. What you've allowed in the church is corrupting the good manners of your church. Awake to righteousness. Wake up, you folks. This epistle was read to them. Can you imagine the ones that sat in that church and preached that there was no resurrection of the dead? I like the feeling that I can imagine. I like it. Awake to righteousness. Church, wake up. Sin not. That is a sin to deny the resurrection of the dead and to deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For some have not the knowledge of God. It is pitiful that your church is so weak that there are people that would actually believe this tripe. I speak this to your shame. And he rebuked them. You can you can feel it. I, I hope you can feel it and you can hear it. As some man stood up there and read this epistle of that church. I hope that there were some people looking down the aisle at so-and-so who'd been saying there was no resurrection of the dead. I hope they threw them out of the church as soon as the epistle had its amen at the end. Or they repented. I hope they ran forward screaming and howling. I had never thought of all these arguments that way. We can't deny the resurrection of the dead. Okay. He's given you the history. He's given you what it means about salvation. He's given you what it means about future things. He's given you some practical arguments and he's rebuked the church. Now there's a skeptic. They're, they're always there. Right. Up goes the hand. This is what it sounds like. This is a foolish and unlearned question, and you never have to answer these people. But Paul answered them once, because the Bible says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Well, Brother Paul, if you're right in those arguments that you've just laid out, what kind of a body 
do we get in the resurrection? Making fun of the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to hear it put another way? Jesus, since you believe in the resurrection, there was a, there was a, a woman that married seven brothers. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Let me paraphrase in Crosby's modern version. You idiots. If you'd ever read the Bible, you know that they don't marry in heaven. So why would you ask me such a stupid question? And if you want to know that there is a resurrection of the dead, why don't you read your own scriptures where it says, To Moses, I am the God of Abraham. He is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. If, if, if God would use a present tense verb, I am, when he's speaking to Moses 400 years after Abraham, I am the God of Abraham, then Abraham must have been alive someplace. Right. You precious Sadducees. I'm sorry that that's a corruption, but I wanted you to get the sense of the words. And the Bible doesn't tell me how to give you the sense. That's just a different method. It just says, give you the sense of the words. That's how Jesus responded, and this is how Paul responded. And I like this one, too. You can tell I like the, the woman with seven husbands. Right. Yeah. Whose wife will she be? <laughs> uh, listen, whenever you meet somebody that asks a question like that, walk away and shake off the dust of your feet and wipe your feet. They don't deserve an answer. Let them wrestle with the first ten verses. Let them wrestle with the 500 witnesses, the great part of which were still alive. Let them buy a ticket across the Mediterranean Sea and get themselves into Judea and meet the eyewitnesses that saw the Lord Jesus Christ instead of their stupid questions. The Bible repeats it over and over and over again. Foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they gender strife. They don't deserve an answer. They're not worthy of the truth. They're not looking for the truth. They just want to argue and fight. Do you think this person is looking for the truth? What kind of body do they come with? What does Paul call this person that asks the question? Have you read the chapter? Verse 35, some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool! That's why I'm taking the angle I am on the text. Thou fool! That which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. You fool, you've grown up around farmers your whole life. You know that you can't get a new crop without putting part of an old crop to death. That thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. When you put a seed in the ground, that seed has to corrupt. The moisture and the dirt around that seed corrupts it and causes it to dissolve and thereby begins the process of life that brings a new plant up out of the ground out of that seed. You fool! Why are you asking about the body that we're going to get in heaven when you won't even recognize the, kind, the, the way that we get a body here on earth for a piece of grain? Right. And that, verse 37, we're just going to go on with the farmer's illustration here for a while. We've got to keep moving, brethren. 
I will be happy to answer any verse, any clause, any phrase of any one of these verses that you have during this coming week. But I want to give you an overview of 1 Corinthians 15 because I want to get to the last five verses of this chapter so that we can celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because I want to tell you about a man and we're going to celebrate a man who has guaranteed immortality for us because he came to this earth and he did not have to die, but he chose to die for us. It's the most fantastic fact in the universe, and they don't know about it except through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has guaranteed immortality by choosing to die. And brethren, you're going to sing that little song that's in your hands. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and to set him free. But he chose to die alone for you and me. Just, just Just hold for a few more verses. You're a farmer for a minute. I'm running the extent of my knowledge. (laughs) If we were all farmers, we'd know this. You poor accountants getting your CPAs. You probably never planted a thing in your life, just like me. My dad made me pick them, but he did the planning. That was a proper relationship. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 15, 37. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and every seed his own body. There's two arguments that are made in verses 35, 36, 37, and 38. The two arguments. First of all, you can't get growth or you can't get life without death. And a farmer knows that. You've got to take part of the previous harvest, which is your seed corn, and put it in the ground and kill it in order to get a new harvest. Second, when you put that seed in the ground, that little tiny, let's, just, let's use a kernel of corn, a seed of corn. When you put that in the ground, that's not what comes out of the ground. Something that comes out of the ground totally different. There's this huge 10, 8, 6, 12, 14, wherever you live and whatever kind of soil you have, foot stalk that comes out of the ground, hanging off of it as a bunch of leaves to pick up the sunshine. There's that ear of corn that's got 16 rows of 50 kernels for 800-fold increase over what you put in the ground. That's 80,000%. 800-fold increase over what you put in the ground. It looks totally different. It can be 12 feet high. That's why farmers get their GPS out, attach them to their tractors, and make corn mazes for young people to go around and get lost in at night. Got to do that in the next month, young people, because it's the middle of September, and by the end of October, it's all gone. But they grow up that much because it doesn't look like what you put in the ground. It looks totally different. Now, thou fool, you want to ask, what kind of a body do we get in the resurrection? Well, what kind of a body do you get when you stick a kernel of corn in the ground? Or you put, you stick a seed of a corn plant in the ground, what do you get? You get something totally different. It's dramatically superior. It's full of life. And that thing you put in the ground had to die to get that beautiful plant out of the ground. It's got a tassel. It's got, so it could have two ears of corn. Ever seen a stalk with two ears? God doesn't have to make them all the same. There's a God in heaven that is so great, He can dictate every plant in a cornfield, even though you can't count them. He can tell which ones are going to have two ears, which ones are going to have three ears, and which is going to have one. Which is going to have Siamese twins trying to grow together in the same covering. The Lord does all that. Verse 39. Thou fool. He's answering the fool with their little question. What does the body look like? The 
The question was not asked to learn. The question was asked to object. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. Why don't you think about that, that there are different kinds of flesh, even for your existence and your eyes to look upon, you skeptic that's asking me this question. Verse 40, there are also celestial bodies, that's in the heavens, or bodies terrestrial, that's on the earth. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's a great difference between bodies on earth, like a mountain or a lake, and bodies in the skies, like a sun or a moon. There's a great difference in their glory. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. God makes them in all kinds of different ways. When you look up at night, there's some stars that are bright. There's some stars that you can barely see, and there's a whole lot of stars you can't see. Because they're different in glory, strength, size, candle power. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's a change in the body. It's a difference in glory. It's, a, it's like the difference between stars. It's like the difference between the sun and the moon. The moon's, the moon's blue cheese and the sun just shines off it. Whatever you think the moon's made out of. One's, ju- one's just a reflective body. The other one's a ball of fire. They're different in glory. God made them different. Right. There's difference in between animals. There's ugly little sloths that hang in the, ju- the jungles of South America. And then there's lions. You know, they, they, they differ in glory. Then there's fish and there's birds. And we, we zoologically break down these categories of, of creatures ourselves. And Paul was already telling us about it 2,000 years ago. To get across the point that there is a great difference in bodies, even the ones that we can witness. Right. So also is the resurrection of the dead. He is not teaching here that there are different rewards in heaven for the good boys versus the bad boys. The good Christians versus the bad Christians. I don't even like to use that expression. Because we all ought to be holy Christians. That is not his point, because that is not the subject of 1 Corinthians 15. The subject of 1 Corinthians 15 is, what kind of a body am I going to have after I get rid of this body? It's going to be as different as the differences in bodies that you witness in the creation. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption... It is raised in incorruption. What we put in the ground at a cemetery, at a funeral, is corrupting. It's dying, it's rotting, it's stinking, it's decaying, it's horrible. It's corrupting. As soon as the spirit leaves the body that provides its animation and its life, the blood stops flowing, which is the the life of the flesh is in the blood. The reason you have capillaries and arteries that carry blood to every part of your body is because God told us the life of the flesh is in the blood. And when that blood stops because the spirit leaves and the heart stops pumping and the, the vessel is broken, at the, the pitcher is broken at the fountain, as Ecclesiastes chapter 12 describes, immediately it starts to decay. You go back to clay because there's no animating force in it in the blood. There's no animating force in it in the spirit. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. We put a corrupting body in the ground, the one that comes out. Now listen, you better be content with what the apostle gives us here. If you're not content, then you're like the skeptics. Because you want to know more information than God chooses to give us. But He gives us plenty. I know I'm corrupting. I hate it. 
I could give you 40 different measures by which I'm corrupting. Standing at a blue line on that beautiful black track over here at the junior high school or the middle school on Holland Road and looking down and seeing 100M, pulling my stopwatch out and hitting start and seeing how fast I can get to the finish line, it tells me that I'm corrupting. Because in high school it was a pleasure. At 52, it's a burden. And a hundred different measures, and we all know that. I'm talking about a hundred meter sprint. Listen, I don't know if the guy in high school could have lugged all that I have to lug to the finish line. But that's because we're corrupting. It's sown in corruption, but it comes up in incorruption. We're rotting all the time. My skin's peeling off. Your skin is peeling off. You're replacing your skin. Your eyesight's corrupting. Your hearing's corrupting. This is what the Lord wants us to know about it. So is also the resurrection of the dead. It's sown in corruption. It raised in incorruption. When it comes up, it never decays. Never decays. So learn that about the new body. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. What we put in the ground is, is really pitiful most times. We're talking about an ordinary death, not an accidental death. An ordinary death, by the time a person reaches ordinary death, their powers and their faculties are so dishonorable because they've decayed. They're so weak. They're so pitiful. They don't look like they did when they were 20 years old. They don't look like they did at 14 when they reached the highest point of human growth hormone being triggered by their pituitary gland. They don't look like they did at 19 when they had the highest level of testosterone they're ever going to have. They change. They're dishonorable. They're, it's pitiful. It's not glorious. It's actually unpleasant. It's actually ugly. No one needs to be offended that the body you're going to put in the ground is going to be ugly because we need to read the rest of this particular part of the verse. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. And this text tells me that God knows the difference in glory of the sun and the glory of the moon, and He knows the difference in glory of the different stars. And if He says we get to put something ugly in the ground but it's raised in glory, then it's going to be beautiful. And that's where we're content with that. It's honorable. It's glorious. It's incorruptible. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. What you can't do when you get old, you're going to be able to do when you're resurrected in a new body in heaven. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This is a natural body. It has flesh and blood. It is limited to space. It can't go through walls. It's contained here. It's a function of time. It's limited. It's very limited. You put a clothespin on my nose and this body ends. That's what the Bible says. Man's breath is in his nostrils. But it's raised a spiritual body. And for, for the skeptics or for anybody that's sincere, what in the world? There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And if that isn't good enough for you, you have a problem with God. There is a spiritual body that is glorious, that is strong, that doesn't corrupt, and it has immortality. And it's one that's waiting for us in heaven. It's our tabernacle from heaven that we get to put on. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul with his natural body. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ is able to give life by the spirit of his mouth. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. 
And afterward, that which is spiritual, just the order of time. First comes the spiritual. I mean, first comes the natural, then the spiritual. Adam came first. Jesus came second. We get our natural body first. Then we get our spiritual body. The first man is of the earth, earthy. Adam and your physical body. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. As is the earthy, like Adam, such are they also that are earthy, you and me. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. What you and I will be like when we're in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. First John chapter 3. Verse 49, and as we have borne the image of the earthy, which we're doing right now, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he appeared to John, had a pretty glorious body, wouldn't you say? Were his feet burning like brass? Were his eyes like a flame of fire? Did he have a golden girdle around his middle? Was he clothed in white linen? Did he have hair as white as snow? Was he glorious? We're going to be like him. We're going to bear the image of the heavenly. We've bore the image of earthly Adam. We're going to bear the image of our heavenly Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible's teaching us. We shall also bear that image. Now let's get some rules down about heaven. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't get in the pearly gates, as they call them, in what you're wearing right now. I don't mean your clothes. I mean your skin, your flesh, and your bone, and your blood. Can't get in that way. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It stinks. It's dishonorable. It's ugly. It's amazing. We get these Miss Universes and Mr. Universes, and we look at them and say, Wow, look at how beautiful. No! The Bible says we're not good enough to get in. Because we've got to be made glorious. We've got to be made incorruptible. We've got to be given some honor. We've got to be given some strength. Flesh and blood don't inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. You can't put something corruptible that's dying in a place where there is no death. I hope I'm. Go- I hope you're getting it. Behold, it's simple enough. I show you a mystery. This is a mystery because it's not in your anatomy textbooks. This is a mystery because it's not in your biology textbooks. This is a mystery because it ain't in any textbook except the Bible. Behold, I show you a mystery. If flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, then what are we going to do? We're going to be changed. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Meaning, not everyone is going to have to die a physical death in order to be in heaven. Because there will be some of God's elect still on earth when Jesus Christ returns, and they will not be sleeping in the church cemetery because they'll be alive when He comes, just like First Thessalonians describes it in chapter 4 when it says that those which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those that are asleep. Right. We shall not all sleep. Not every single one of us is going to have to die. But every single one of us is going to have to be changed. And we shall be changed. And I show you a mystery. This is the mystery of the gospel. This is information that you cannot learn except in the Bible. Do you know how many hours and how much effort and how much money you pay and how much mental sweat you, you, you pours from your mental pores for learning anatomy and memorizing all those anatomical nomenclatures for the things in a body? You put so much effort into it. But you know what? This is real information. What are you really learning? There's a new body coming for us. Thank you, blessed God. I show you a mystery. You can't learn it anywhere else but the Bible. We shall not all sleep. Not everyone has to die. 
There's going to be a generation living when Jesus Christ returns, but we shall all be changed, meaning we're going to get a new body. Verse 52, how long is it going to take? In a moment. What do you mean by a moment? In the twinkling of an eye. When is this twinkling of an eye? At the last trump. The last announcement that God's going to have to make for anything on earth or heaven because it's going to usher in the eternal state. If you want to go to Revelation chapter 11 when the seventh angel sounds, it's a fine place to go because that's the last trump as well. And the seventh angel sounded. Go read about it, Revelation chapter 11. Yes, at the last trump, there isn't anything else to play out. He's going to raise us from the dead and take us into heaven. The trumpet shall sound. Oh, what a sweet noise. If you've been to hear Handel's Messiah and they had somebody that knew how to purse their lips and blast through one of those trumpets, it's worth hearing when they get to the 1 Corinthians 15 section and those boys are let go and they're, they're breathing as deep as they can and you hope they've been doing their breathing exercises so they don't flub on the high notes. But then they go after it. It's, it blesses your heart to hear the Messiah when they get to 1 Corinthians 15. The trumpet shall sound and the dead, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. They will come out of corruption into incorruption in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, or we can't get into heaven. The Lord's going to prepare us for heaven. He has made, this adoption goes from beginning to end, doesn't it? When we talk about adoption, we talk about God's predestination before the world began, but it extends all the way to the end, where He makes sure we have bodies fit for His house. Is that good? He's going to change our bodies to be fit for His house. The kingdom of God, heaven, to be able to dwell with Him forever. We have to have immortal bodies. We can't have stinking bodies up there. Listen, I don't mean to be crude, but I stink! Sherry, please forgive me when I get home. But Listen, we stink. We can't go into heaven like that. We'll never stink in heaven. Never. Because we're corruptible. But we're going to put on incorruption. We take it for granted. You know how many times I've heard this chapter in my life? I've been taught every single year of my life. But we take it for granted. This is the most fantastic news. You're spending so much time, money, and effort to learn knowledge that is not important. Will never really serve you compared to this knowledge. This is fantastic knowledge, and they don't know about it. They can sit there with all their degree, all the degrees they want to get with the most powerful microscopes they have. They can dissect the human body and try to figure it out, which they haven't yet. But we can figure out this. We know some things are coming. We know how fast they're going to happen. We know when they're going to happen, and we know what's going to happen. We know the kind of change. We know the kind of body that we're going to have. You say, where, where does it say what kind of... I just went over that. It's going to be strong. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be honorable. It's, not, it's going to be incorruptible. Verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality for us to get into heaven. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, when this happens, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, taken out of Hosea 13 that I opened this service with, O death! O death! Where is your sting? What happened to your stinger? 
You know, there's one good thing about when a honeybee stings you. When it flies away, it leaves its stinger behind. It can't get you the second time. Now, it's not fun looking down at that little stinger that's got a little ball in the end doing this, squeezing poison into you, but at least it can't sting you again. What does that have to do with this? I'm not sure, but I thought I'd try. There is no sting left in death. O death, where is thy sting? It's taken away. O grave, where is thy victory? The grave swallows up everything we know. Shane, I was talking. Where, where is Shane? Raise your hand, Shane. Do, oh, there he is. Shane, thank you. I can't see. But no, I don't want anybody to know that. Shane, thank you. I told you at break time that you, you're, you're a pallbearer for your uncle. Don't be offended, brother. He's going to be a pallbearer for you, and I told him he's going to be a pallbearer for me. Because the grave claims everything. The grave's taken everyone. But you know what this gets us, allows us to say, O grave, where is thy victory? There's no victory because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rip us out of that grave just like he ripped himself out of the grave. The sting of death is sin. The reason we die is sin. We know that. There is no college textbook on anatomy or biology that teaches the cause of death. We know the cause, but we know the cure. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the cure for sin. It's the cure for, for the claim of sin. It's the cure for the sting of death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, because of 57 verses of fantastic, glorious truth, therefore, my beloved brethren, my dear Corinthians, that have been considering some heretical doctrines, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, for your labor, your labor in this life is bringing about another life that is far superior to this one. If in this life only... We have hope in Christ. We are of all men most miserable. If we truly have the hope of eternal life and the resurrection of the dead that is described here, we are of all men most blessed. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen.